0: Exodus forty sixteen through 38. This Moses did, according to all the Lord commanded him. So he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veal of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veal, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden alt- altar in the tent of meeting before the veal and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place a screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. He erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel was set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, Then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The word of the Lord.
1: We live in a world that's emptied of God. The great sociologist Max Weber uh, very famously referred to our modern secular society as disenchanted, and he didn't mean that we're disillusioned. Disenchantment means that spiritual reality is not a part of our daily reality. It means that even if you believe in God, God does not play a meaningful role in our public life together. Now, some of you may say, you've got to be kidding me. It seems like religion is having an influence on politics far greater than we've ever seen at any time in the past. And isn't politics a part of our public life together? You would be right. Um, but what is the, the vision, the larger vision of reality that shapes our life together in this country? What is the solution, the big solution that, that our culture puts forward as the solution to our biggest problems? It's a political solution. So for many religious people in our country, not all, but for many people, religious people in our country, God is really more of a co-signer on a larger political agenda. And that means that for many people, both non-religious and religious people, God is not the most meaningful reality. Politics is. We live in a world that's emptied of God. And listen, it's not just our culture, our time, and our place Um, Let me ask you a question. Do you think it's possible that um, all of the world's biggest problems come from one basic problem? And that if you could figure out what that one basic problem is and then solve it, then you would solve all of the other world's problems. If you could do that, that would be huge, wouldn't it? So lots of people have tried, for instance, Sigmund Freud, the father of modern psychology, he said the world's most basic problem is psychological. Or Karl Marx, the founder of communism, he said, no, no, the world's most basic problem is economic. Lots of people have nominated candidates for world's most basic problem, and then they've proposed solutions on the basis of that problem, but none of them have worked, not so far. The world is still a mess, So what can we do about that? Is there anything we even can do about that? We're finishing a series in the book of Exodus today, and we're finishing it by circling back to what is probably the main question in the whole book of Exodus. The question is, what's wrong with the world, and what's the solution? The book of Exodus really is God's answer to that question, and this passage that we just read is the climax. What is it? The tabernacle. The tabernacle is, is, is the answer, God's answer, to the world's most basic problem and what the solution to that problem is. It's the tabernacle. So let's look at the tabernacle and look at it under three basic headings, okay? We're going to see the problem it addresses, the solution it provides, and lastly, the mission it propels. Okay? The problem it uh, addresses, the solution it provides and the mission it propels. Okay, first, the problem that the tabernacle addresses. So, what is the tabernacle? You know, we've got this big tent, and it's got all these furnishings in it, like, um, you know, there's uh, an altar and, and the wash basins and veils and tables and lampstands and things. Like, what does it all mean? Well, In order to understand the tabernacle, it is absolutely crucial to understand that the tabernacle is just one part of a much bigger story. In fact, it's the main storyline of the Bible. It's a story that begins all the way back in the first book of Genesis and goes all the way to the last book of Revelation. The story begins in Genesis when God created the world, and when that happened, he he made the Garden of Eden, and the, the first humans were dwelling in the garden, but it wasn't just a dwelling place for people. The garden was the dwelling place of God. The garden was the place of God's presence. It was a place of closeness and intimacy and trust with God. But But then there was a relational breakdown. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 3. Instead of trusting God, the first people, they started thinking, hmm, does God really care about me? Does God really have my best interests at heart? Can I really trust God? I'm not so sure. I think I need to take my own happiness and my own life into my own hands. And by the way, if you think about it, you realize that is our modern culture's definition of what it means to be a liberated, authentic human being. We say, um, don't let anyone define you. Don't let anyone tell you how to live. You have to be true to yourself. You have to take your life into your own hands. You have to take your identity in your own hands. You have to be in control of your destiny. You know, really, the the irony and the tragedy of that is that that is the biblical definition of sin we want to be our own lord and master it happened first in the garden there was a rejection of god there was a betrayal of god and as a result they were cast out of the garden cast out of the presence of god and what happened next was god put a flaming sword at the entrance of the garden to guard the way back into the garden you know what the sword was there for the sword was a way of saying there's been a relational cutoff, and until that cutoff gets dealt with, um, th- there's no way back into the relationship, no way back into the presence of God until that cutoff gets dealt with. And you know how this works. I mean, have you ever had somebody hurt you, and then they want to come back and pretend like nothing ever happened? They just want to come sashing back into your life and say, hey, what's up? And you want to say, what do you mean, hey? (laughs) There's no hey. You know what you did. And I know that you know what you did. And you know that I know that you know what you did. And until that gets dealt with, there's no hey. Until we deal with the sword, until we deal with the cutoff, there is no relationship until that gets dealt with. Friends, the garden was the place of the presence of God, but then there was a relational cutoff. There was an alienation from God, and from that point on, we've been alienated from God. We're exiles from the Lord. Genesis 3 is the story of relational breakdown with God. And until that relational cutoff gets dealt with, there is no relationship. There is no presence of God. We have to deal with it. And, you know, really the amazing thing is that from that point on in the Bible, you see the Bible traces out the history of every other kind of problem in the world. You will never find a more brilliant and penetrating social and cultural analysis than you will find in the Bible. Because Genesis 3 talks about the story of the relational breakdown with God. But then beginning in Genesis 4, you see every other kind of breakdown. Moving throughout the rest of the Bible, you see family breakdown, social breakdown, political, economic, cultural, physical, psychological, every kind of breakdown. That means that all of the world's biggest problems, hatred, violence, war, greed, poverty, injustice, oppression, disease, um, even death, that all of the world's biggest problems come from this one basic problem that we're alienated from God. We're exiles from God. We've been exiled out of the garden, and all of the world's biggest problems stem from that. And as a result, not only is this world emptied of God, we feel an inner emptiness ourselves. I mean, this is one of the defining characteristics of the human condition. We all feel a sense of inner emptiness we all feel a sense, have you ever wondered why, you know, like, like we all feel like there's something bigger than us, something good and beautiful and true, something beyond time, beyond space, beyond the limits of this world. We all feel like there's another world, a world beyond this world, but we're cut off from it. We're cut off. Why is that? This is why. It's we're alienated from God. We're, we're exiles in this world. Everybody experiences this. We, we describe it in different ways, but everyone experiences this. So, for instance, Eva Hoffman is a Polish-Jewish intellectual. Her parents were refugees during the Holocaust. So this is someone, she knows what it's like to be in exile. But she says something really interesting in one of her essays. She writes this, Since Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, is there anyone who does not in some way feel like an exile? We feel ejected from our first homes and landscapes, from our first romance, from our authentic self. An ideal sense of, of belonging, of attuning with others and ourselves eludes us. You see, we all have this experience. Let me give you just one more. John Krakauer uh, is the author of many famous adventure books. He uh, wrote a book once about Mormon fundamentalism. And at the end of the book, he basically said, look, you know, if I'm going to write a book about religion... It's probably fair for me to um, disclose my own personal beliefs on the matter. So here's what he said. John Krakauer writes, I don't know what God is or what God had in mind when the universe was set in motion. In fact, I don't even know if God even exists. Although I confess that I sometimes find myself praying in great times of fear or despair or astonishment at a display of unexpected beauty. And if I remain in the dark about our purpose here and the meaning of eternity, I have nevertheless arrived at an understanding of a few more modest truths. Most of us fear death. Most of us yearn to comprehend how we got here and why, which is to say, most of us ache to know the love of our Creator. And we will no doubt feel that ache, most of us, as long as we happen to be alive. You see, it's not just Christians. It's not just religious people. We all feel empty. We all ache. We all feel like exiles. We all feel cut off from something in this world. And the reason is because there's a memory trace in every single human being that reminds us of what we were created for. It's the garden. It's the presence of God. We lost it. And until we get it back, until that gets put right Nothing else in the world is ever really, truly going to get put right. That's the problem that the tabernacle addresses. But secondly, we see the solution that it provides. Remember our storyline, okay? God wants to be present with his people. We see that in the garden. But then because of our rejection of him, because of our betrayal, there's been a relational cutoff, and now the story can't go forward unless there's a restoration of the relationship. So that's exactly what the tabernacle does. The tabernacle is the place where God comes to dwell with His people. So for instance, if you look at verses 34 and 35, as soon as they finished putting the tent together, it says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You know what the tabernacle really is? There are many scholars for centuries, and not just Christian scholars, uh, lots of rabbis, Jewish scholars, they've all pointed out the same thing. In verse 33, um, notice it says, Moses finished the work. The scholars point out that those are the exact words that it says at the beginning of Genesis 2, that when God finished his work of of creation, it says God finished his work. exact same words. Do you know what that means? It means that the tabernacle is the Garden of Eden 2.0. It's God rebooting creation. And really, don't miss the language of filling in this passage. It says the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In fact, it says it twice. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That God's vision is to fill the world with his presence, to fill the world with his glory. We feel empty. God wants to fill us. But that's not all. Not only is the tabernacle the place of God's presence, the tabernacle can only be the place of God's presence because it's also the place of sacrifice. Remember our problem. There was a a relational cutoff. We're alienated from God. And, And just like our relationally challenged friends, we can't just come bouncing back into God's presence and say, hey, something has to happen in order to deal with that cutoff. Friends, that is exactly what the tabernacle is designed to do. How? The tabernacle, if you want to picture it, really these these, um, curtains right here, a good example, there was a courtyard surrounded by curtains like this. And in the middle of the courtyard, there was uh, another section that was screened off, and that was called the holy place. And only the priests could go into the holy place because you're getting closer to the presence of God. But then, even more than that, in the middle of the holy place, there was another section that was separated by a veil. And and that section was called the most holy place. And only one person, the high priest, could go in there because that's where the presence of God was, the most holy place. And, And even the great high priest, he was the only person that could go in there, but even he could only go in there once a year And when he did, when he did go in, he had to bring the blood of the sacrifice in order to atone for the sins of the people. You see, everything in the tabernacle is leading to the innermost sanctum. Everything is leading to the most holy place. Everything is leading to the presence of God, but you can't just walk right in. You can't just walk in and say, hey, something has to happen in order to deal with the relational cutoff. That's what the tabernacle is designed to do. Everything in the tabernacle is a visual picture of what needs to happen in order for our relationship with God to be restored. So for instance, when you first walked into the courtyard, the very first thing that you would encounter would have been an altar. The altar was where they poured out the blood of the sacrifice. To stop at the altar was a way of owning the fact, owning the reality that there's been a relational cutoff and that someone or something needs to go under the sword in order for us to get back into the presence of God. The next thing after the altar you would have encountered would have been the wash basin. The wash basin was a a sign or a picture saying that, that we need spiritual renewal. It was a way of saying that something needs to happen to us spiritually, internally. It's not something that we can do for ourselves. It's something that needs to happen to us. Now, I'm not going to go through everything in the tabernacle. It would take too much time. But even that much right there is, is enough to show us that there's something really amazing going on with the tabernacle. The tabernacle really is a picture of the gospel. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. It means that, that um, the tabernacle shows us that, that our most basic problem is that we're alienated from God. That's what it shows us. That our most basic problem is not a political problem, it's not a psychological problem, it's not an economic problem. It's showing us that our most basic problem is not something that we can fix with better technology or better science or better medicine or better politics or better economics or better anything. And it's not that those things aren't important, it's not that we don't work hard to address those things, we'll talk more about that in just a bit. But what it does mean is that none of those things has the power to transform our heart. It means that none of those things has the power to to really fix our relationship with God. That that unless something happens to transform our relationship with Him, that's not something that we can do for ourselves. That's something that has to be done for us. That's what the tabernacle is showing us. It's the difference between religion and the gospel. See, what religion tells us that you have to try really hard, you have to be a good person, and if you work really hard, if you live a good life, then God will love you and accept you. Friends, the tabernacle is the exact opposite of that message because it's the message of the gospel. It says that the only way for you to have a restored relationship with God, that's not something that we can do for ourselves. That's something that has to be done for us has to be done for us so the all we can do is first we have to recognize that we're alienated from God we have to recognize that that we need spiritual renewal and that's not something that we can do to ourselves or provide for ourselves that the whole tabernacle is one massive glorious message that that what we most need the love and forgiveness of God is something that we can only receive from him by grace and the tabernacle is God's provision of that it's the message of the gospel But listen, you know, the tabernacle itself is not the ultimate solution to our biggest problem. The tabernacle simply points to God's ultimate solution. Because remember our storyline, okay? It began in the garden, the presence of God. But there was a breakdown, and so we go on, and right here we have the tabernacle. Now, later on, it's going to become the temple in Jerusalem, but even that's not the end of the story. Um, In the Gospel of John... Uh, He's talking about Jesus, and he says that Jesus is the Word, and the Word was God. But then in John 1, verse 14, he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, that word dwelt is the Greek word for tabernacle. In fact, a lot of the older translations will say, The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And no, that's not a coincidence. Yes, it's saying exactly what you think it's saying how does God make a way to dwell with his people how does God make a way to heal the relational cutoff that's occurred between us and him it's Jesus Jesus is the tabernacle Jesus is the way that God has provided you know I was listening this week to a sermon by the great Welsh preacher Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones all the way back in the 1950s he preached a sermon on the tabernacle He says that the tabernacle is one great and glorious prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. The tabernacle is a prophecy of Jesus. Everything in the tabernacle points to Jesus. So for instance, Jesus, uh, his blood was shed at the altar. He's the sacrifice whose blood was shed. And what about the wash basin? Jesus' blood is blood is the water of the wash basin that cleanses us. First John 1 John 1.7 says that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is the great high priest who goes into the most holy place. He goes into the presence of God. But when Jesus, the great high priest, goes in, he doesn't bring the blood of some animal that can never really atone for sins. He brings his own blood, which can atone. I mean, think about it. It's amazing. It's saying that not only is Jesus the priest, he's also the sacrifice. That Jesus Christ has done everything necessary to restore our relationship with God, to deal with the relational cutoff. So in the Gospels, it tells us that when Jesus died on the cross... That the veil of the temple, the veil that separated us from the most holy place, the veil that separates us from the presence of God, it says that the veil of the temple was torn in two. Do you know what that means? It means that the barrier is gone, the sword has been removed. There is no more obstacle. You don't need a priest to go in for you because Jesus Christ is the great high priest, and through his body, he's made a way for us now to have access to the presence of God. Everything necessary, it's done. Jesus is the one who did it. So in the beginning, in the garden, it said that God finished his work, and in the tabernacle, it said that Moses finished his work, but on the cross, it said, Jesus said, it is finished. Everything necessary. It is finished. It is completed. He completed the work so that you now have access to the uh, presence of God. But even that is not the end of our story today. We've seen the problem the tabernacle addresses, we've seen the solution it provides. But we've got to talk about one more thing, and we're not done until we do. We have to see the mission the tabernacle propels. What do I mean by that? Well, here's the question. You know, if if the tabernacle if Jesus provides a way for us to get the presence of God back in our lives, does that mean that we can just kick back and have this wonderful private experience and enjoyment of God's presence in our life? No way. Remember our story. If you were with us at the beginning of our series on Exodus, all the way back at the beginning of Exodus, you see that the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt. They were serving Pharaoh, but then God didn't set them free so they could just go live however they wanted. No, God freed them so they could serve him. In the beginning, they were serving Pharaoh, but by the end, they're serving God. Why? What's going on with this? It, it talks about their journeys, you know? So, for instance, if you notice in verses 35 through 37, it says, "'The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle.'" Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud, and that cloud is the glory of God, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the glory cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. Twice, not just once, but twice in that paragraph, it talks about the journeys of the people, their journeys. So here's the question, where are they going? The answer is simple. God had sent them on a mission remember our story. All the way back in the beginning, all the way back in the garden, God's vision was He wants to fill the world with His presence. He wants to fill the world with His um, life-giving, soul-satisfying, beautiful glory. If you were with us last week, we looked at this word glory. Glory means weightiness. Glory means for something to be glorious means that there's nothing that's more significant more real more beautiful that's what glory is God's vision is to fill the world with his glory but that vision got derailed in the garden so in Genesis 12 God said well I'm going to start a mission to heal and restore the world And you can read about it in Genesis 12 God calls Abraham and he says Abraham I'm going to bless you I'm going to fill your, your life with blessing but it's not just for you I want to bless the whole world through you, through you. The reason God chose Abraham, the reason God chose Israel, the reason he had them build the tabernacle is not just so that they could be filled with the glory of God, it's so that through them, the whole world could be filled with the glory of God. That's always been God's vision In fact, centuries later in the prophet Habakkuk, God himself said that that the whole world will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. It's always been about filling the world with the glory of God. The reason that you and I feel so empty is because we're always trying to fill ourselves. We're always chasing some glory other than God's glory in our life. Something other than God weighs the most in your life Something other than God is the most meaningful reality in your life. That's our problem. We're always trying to fill ourselves. But the more we fill ourselves, the emptier we get. It's like addiction. And the amazing thing about this story is that God keeps calling us to be a part of what he's doing in this world, a part of his mission to fill the world with his glory. But, But the reality is we'll never be able to really fulfill this mission. Adam and Eve couldn't do it. They failed. Abraham failed. Israel failed. Uh, You and I, we fail. You know what the, the real message of the Bible is? The message of the Bible is not God saying, now here are the instructions. Here's how I want you to live. And if you do a good job, then I will love you and accept you. That is not the message of the Bible. The real message of the Bible is, here's how I want you to live, but you can't. But there's one who can and did For you, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the true Adam. He is the true Abraham. He is the true Israel. Jesus is the true tabernacle. He is the true temple of God. And according to the book of Revelation, at the very end, at the climax of the story, one day Jesus Christ himself is going to come. He's going to renew the whole cosmos, and then he's going to establish his city here on a renewed world, And Revelation 21 tells us that that when that happens, when the city of God is finally established on earth, that on that day there will be no temple in the city. Why? Because the temple is the Lord God and his son, the Lamb. That's the temple. And on that day, it really will be the fulfillment of that prophecy in Habakkuk. Then the world will be filled with the glory of the Lord. It's always been God's vision, So where does that leave you and me in this story? You know, um, really the amazing and beautiful thing about this is that even though Jesus is the only one who can really fulfill the mission, um, he still calls us to be a part of it. God still calls us to be a part of this mission that he's doing in the world. And now more than ever, God's vision is to fill the world with his glory, and so if Jesus is the true garden, the true tabernacle, the true temple, and then for thirty-three some years the, the the garden temple glory of God was dwelling here on earth in the person of Jesus Christ, and then at the end, at the climax of history, Jesus is going to fill the world with his glory. What happens right now in this interim period between then and when Jesus comes back? Where's the glory? Where's the filling? Where is it located? The answer is the church. It's the church. That until the day that Jesus returns, the church is supposed to be the tabernacle, the temple, the place that is showing and filling the world with the glory of God. The Bible talks about this in many places throughout the New Testament. So, for instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is talking to the church and he says, Don't you know that you are the temple of God? And, get this, that the Spirit of God dwells in you? He's saying that until the day that Jesus returns to fill the whole world with the glory of God, that the church is supposed to be the temple of God because the church is filled with the Spirit of God. Now, listen, it is painfully, and I mean painfully obvious, that the church has serious problems, that the church is far, far from what it is meant to be But that just makes it all the more urgent that we embrace the mission that God has called us to to fill the world with the glory of God. It was Israel's mission. So, for instance, if you were with us last week when Moses was having this conversation with God, he said, God, we need your presence with us because unless we have your presence in our lives, how will we be distinct from the rest of the world? How will the rest of the nations see that you are our God and we are your people? That is a very missional statement that Moses made back then. Really, Moses is showing that he understands that the that, that mission of Israel was to be a community that, uh, that, that manifested the glory of God to the world around it, so that when all the nations looked at the nation of Israel, they were supposed to see a foretaste, just a foretaste of what the whole world was going to look like on that day when God renewed the world and made it a place that is filled with His glory. It's kind of like, um, you know how they've got all these condo buildings going up around the neighborhood, and when a building is nearing completion, um, what they'll do is they'll take one of the units, and they'll make it a showcase unit, so that if someone's interested in buying a unit in this nearly completed building, they'll walk in, they'll go into the showcase, and they'll go, oh, this is what the finished product is going to look like. When the world looked at Israel, when the world looks at the church, it's supposed to see a showcase community. It's supposed to see a foretaste of what the finished product is supposed to look like when the glory of the Lord fills the world. That means that for the church, we are supposed to be at work addressing the biggest problems of this world, supposed to be at work addressing the things like injustice and poverty and racism and oppression and healthcare and education, all those things. We should be working at those things. We are called to do that to, in order to be a showcase community but, but all of those problems, that none of those problems get fixed, really and truly get fixed, unless the first and foremost primary problem gets fixed. That's our relationship with God. And that's our mission, to be filled with the glory of God, to show people the glory of the Lord, to show people what the world is going to look like when the world is filled with the glory of God. It's always been about that. Friends, God doesn't want... People to live some degraded, abstemious, um, impoverished life. God wants the world to flourish. But the way that happens is first the relationship gets dealt with, first the cutoff gets dealt with, and then all of the other problems get fixed. It begins with God. It begins with the glory. It begins with the presence. We are called, really, we're called to be glory chasers. You know, one of my favorite verses, maybe my favorite section in the whole book of Exodus really is those last verses in chapter 40. It says that throughout all of their journeys, whenever the glory cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the glory cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. You see what's happening here? I love the picture. Wherever the glory goes, that's where the people go. If the glory's not going there, they're not going there. And they can never get out front of that glory. Our job is to always stay behind the glory and to go wherever it goes. We're called to be glory chasers. You know what that is? Um, Have you ever heard about those crazy people that get in their trucks and chase tornadoes? Have you ever seen the footage? They take these videos of what, they're crazy. They take, the footage shows really what it is, is a pillar of cloud, roaring across the landscape and then they start, they're consumed with chasing these things. Wherever that cloud goes, they go. On the one hand, it's incredibly dangerous. I mean, if you get too close to the outskirts of one of these tornadoes, it'll just rip you apart. But on the other hand, you know, in the biggest storms, the cyclones, really the safest place to be is right in the middle of the storm, right in the middle of what is probably the most awesome, powerful force on earth. Friends, God is calling you to something even crazier than that, but far more thrilling than that. Not to be storm chasers, to be glory chasers. The more you chase, the more we chase because it's we do this as a community. It's a community thing. The more we chase the glory of God, the more we get filled with the glory of God. And the more we're filled with the glory of God, the more the rest of the world gets filled with the glory of God. To fulfill the prophecy that one day the whole world will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Are you a glory chaser today? Let's pray.